Let's jump into today's passage. It comes, bless you, uh, comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. It's a bit of a long passage. Uh, the sermon's not going to be as long as next week, though. Uh, no, it's last week. Uh, famous last words of every pastor before they preach a sermon. But uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. And the word of God reads, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and, it's, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we continue in our series in Mark's Gospel, we're now coming across a chapter that is filled with parables. Uh, Lord, as we'll find as we unpackage today's verses, uh, the parables did seem cryptic to the people that were listening to it. But Lord, we pray that there will be nothing cryptic about it as we study your word today. We pray to hear your voice clearly, to hear you clearly and have an encounter with Christ through these parables today. I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I don't know if you've read through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but Mark's Gospel, con compared to the other three, Matthew, Luke, and John, tends to be a lot more quicker and a lot more action-packed 
You know, it'll have like, Jesus did this, Jesus did that. And not only that, you'll find that Mark is very fond of using a particular word, and that word is immediately. Immediately they went into this town. Immediately they went into the synagogue. Uh, Mark uses it about 41 times throughout his gospel. And it's almost like he's trying to speed through the ministry of Jesus and pack in as much detail as possible. And because of that, you'll find that as you read through Mark's gospel, it's not often that he'll zero in on a particular teaching or a sermon. Like Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's like three entire chapters dedicated to one sermon. You won't find that much in Mark's gospel. However, as we move into chapter 4 of today's passage, you'll find that all of a sudden there are a whole bunch of parables, you know, just clumped into this one chapter. And we can only assume that Mark considered these parables important enough to describe and flesh out in his gospel. Now, I don't know if you know what a parable is, uh, but a parable, to put it simply, is like an analogy or an illustration that's used to explain something. Uh, with every parable in Scripture, there generally is a central focus or thrust um, that's meant to be front and center when it comes to how we understand the parable. And uh, that, that's important to remember because sometimes we can overthink parables. We try to relate and connect every detail of a parable to something that's happening in our life, but that's not really how parables are meant to be treated. Just try to find a central message in the parable and then you'll be sweet. Uh, now, if you remember in chapter 3, last week's chapter, you'll remember that there was an opposition against Jesus that was slowly beginning to ramp up. Uh, people were actually plotting the death of Jesus. And we're only in chapter 3. And so Jesus withdrew to the Sea of Galilee, and there were a crazy number of people following Jesus wherever he went. Uh, like I mentioned, this wasn't a small group. It was like huge. It wasn't like tens, twenties, or even hundreds. It was in the thousands. And because of that, we found in chap uh, verse 9 of chapter 3 that Jesus tells his disciples to get a boat ready. Um, presumably because four of them were fishermen by trade, they would have had access to a boat. But he says, look, get a boat ready. Physically, we're going to get crushed. We might actually be killed if we stay where we are. So get a boat ready. Um, they don't get in the boat straight away. Uh, we found that they ended up at Peter's house where Jesus spoke about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and last week, we also saw about what it meant to be a part of God's family, that it's about, you know, a spiritual relationship with God, not a biological or an ancestral connection to Abraham. Now, today's passage, Jesus is again back by the water. Um, and again, there's a, like a huge, crazy crowd that's gathered. Um, and Jesus ends up making use of the boat that the disciples prepared in the prior chapter. I've never preached from a boat before. I can only imagine it would be pretty cool. Um, but the, the crowd, they're all standing by the shoreline. And Jesus is on a boat that's probably anchored a few meters out in the sea. And he's sitting on the boat. And it's at this point that with his disciples in the boat, Jesus, looking at the crowd standing by the sea, begins teaching these parables. Now, in today's passage, Jesus begins the parable by saying, listen. And the form of this verb, listen, uh, it's what we call an imperative command. I've used that word before. 
Uh, imperative command means it's not advice. It's not a suggestion. It is a mandatory command. He's warning everyone. Just like we, you know, if you read through the Gospels and you see a passage where Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, it, it's kind of like that. It's like, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say next. And once he's got everyone's attention, uh, it's at this point that he shares the parable of the sower. And uh, it reads from verses 3 to 9 in this way. It says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then that's it. As far as the record in Mark's gospel goes, that was the end of this teaching. Now, you have to remember, thousands of people have come to hear Jesus speak. They're standing by the shoreline waiting to hear this guy that they've heard is a phenomenal preacher. And they're waiting to hear something amazing from him. And so based on Mark's record of this gospel, Jesus gives this cryptic parable that no one seems to understand, and he concludes it in verse 9, saying, He who has ears to, um, ears to hear, let him hear. Anyone that's going to listen, listen. And then, without giving an explanation, he just leaves. Um, and this seems to be a pattern whenever Jesus teaches in parable, parables. He shares a parable that no one seems to understand, and then he just kind of walks away. Now, the one thing I love about the writers of the New Testament, and especially the four Gospels and the book of Acts, is that they don't try to embellish the truth um, and make themselves sound smarter than they are. Like, if you're a disciple of the New Testament church, like, if I were, you know, going to write a book about FLM, I'd kind of want to make myself sound good, make you guys sound good. They don't do that. Because it's apparent in verse 10, that, you know, the people on the shore didn't understand what Jesus said, because Jesus never gave an explanation. But it's apparent from verse 10 that even the apostles, the guys that were on the boat with Jesus, right next to him as he was preaching, it's apparent that they didn't understand what Jesus said either. And verse 10 shows us that they didn't ask Jesus what the parable meant until everyone had left. It wasn't until they were alone with Jesus and no one was around that they go up to Jesus and they fess up and they say, look, look, Jesus, we're, we're going to be honest. Um, that parable you taught earlier on the boat, we have no idea what you were talking about. And reading these verses and I was, as I was preparing this week's sermon, uh, it made me remember one particular individual at a previous church I used to serve at. Lovely guy. Um, and he'd sit in the congregation, this was many years ago, and I remember whenever I'd preach, every week, he would make this sound throughout my sermon, over and over and over, and maybe you've heard someone do this before. Um, it was a sound that he'd make to show that he was understanding my sermon and really vibing with the message. And the sound that he'd make would be this. 
Mmm. Mmm. It's like the equivalent of saying amen, isn't it? Like, it's a, it's a verbal nod to acknowledge that you're, you're really understanding and agreeing what's being said. Mmm. And, you know, this was before COVID. And back then, you know, they didn't used to record or live stream the sermons like they do at FLM. Um, but if they did record my sermons from back then, I would guarantee you, if I preached for 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes of the recording, all you would hear is, mmm. Mmm. And it'd kind of go up. Mmm. Like, it, that's right, the sermon. And, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I, I like hearing verbal nods. And I think I speak for every preacher that, you know, when people show a level of engagement during their preaching, because you can see it on their faces, it, it gives you encouragement and, you know, strength as a preacher to kind of keep pressing forward. Um, but the problem was that when I'd have subsequent conversations with this individual after I'd finished preaching, it could be like five minutes after preaching, I'd be at the snacks table and I'd just have a chat with him because I was like, oh, this is the one guy that seemed to really enjoy my sermon. And after speaking to him for a few seconds, I realized that this guy hadn't listened to a word that I'd said. Um, he had no idea what my, he didn't even remember what the passage was. He had no idea what I'd said. And it turned out that this guy had just developed the habit of going, mmm, throughout the sermon. And it was a habit that he developed because that's what he saw other people doing when he was growing up in church. Now, I share this because that's probably what the apostles did. Jesus is on a boat. He's on a boat next to them, preaching to thousands of people on the shore, on the shore in a parable that no one understands. And these are 12 hand-picked apostles of Jesus. They can't sit there looking confused. Like They can't, huh? What's this guy? Sowing seeds? What's this guy talking about? We're here to make disciples, not be farmers. And they probably did that same thing. Mmm, as Jesus says, yes, rocky roads, thorns, mmm. And so once everyone's gone and no one is around, it's then that they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can, can, you, can you teach us what that parable was about? Like we had no idea what you were saying earlier. And Jesus responds, uh, firstly, by giving the context. In verse 11, it says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So according to Jesus in verse 11, we know that this parable is about the kingdom of God. And remember, up until this point, um, there was a gentleman that was preaching before Jesus came. That man was John the Baptist. And if you were to summarize his preaching, it would be this. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or maybe you heard it as repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. And so now that the kingdom has arrived and the king has arrived, it only makes sense for the king then to explain what the kingdom is meant to look like. And so what's the explanation that Jesus gives? He speaks about a sower who we know is either God himself or anyone that proclaims the gospel of Christ. And the gospel is represented by the seed. It's a farming analogy. 
Uh, Jesus wasn't a farmer, he was a carpenter, but he seemed to be very fond of farming analogies. But it's a farming analogy where this sower has a pouch of seeds and he throws, this is how farmers farmed back then, they would throw the seeds as far and as wide as they could across a number of places. And the first place that the seed lands is along a path. And the farms back then, the way it worked, it's not that different to now. They would have these long strips, these uh, long strips of soil where the seeds would be planted and they'd be divided by walking paths where farmers would go to, you know, to yield the harvest. Um, but the seeds in the first scenario would land on this ground, this walking path. And the, the, the dirt and the soil on this ground was actually quite rock solid and hard. And it was hardened because it was a walking path. And as people walked over it, gradually over time, the dirt would become more and more compacted and it had just hardened. And so the, the, the seed would hit the ground and because it was rock solid, um, it wouldn't be capable of having any kind of penetration on the ground. It would just bounce on the ground and just land on top and lay there. And Jesus says that Satan at this moment would see the seeds, and just like the birds of the sky that eat the seeds on the ground, they would swoop down, Satan would swoop down and take away the seed of the gospel. And the people in this first scenario with the hardened hearts represent the walking path. People that are hardened to the gospel. It translates to people that have no desire for the gospel. They are indifferent to Christ and the salvation that he offers. These are people that are opposed and have almost like a malicious opposition to Jesus. Their, hard, uh, their hearts are hardened and it means that they're okay. They're not victims. They're okay with Satan eating the seed and robbing them of the gospel because they never wanted it to begin with. Then we have the rocky ground that Jesus speaks of in verses 16 and 17. And it reads... These are the ones that sown on the rocky ground. The ones who hear, uh, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. In this scenario, outwardly, even though it appears for a period of time that the seed has had some sort of penetration into the soil of these people's hearts, uh, Jesus is saying that the reality is because it's rocky ground, there's no real depth for the seed to take root, to sustain life, or enable any real kind of spiritual growth. For people that fall into this, this scenario, their confession of faith any kind of confession of faith they do make is shallow at best, and their life reflects no transforming power of the gospel. And so for these people, the moment that they face any kind of worldly opposition on account of their faith, Jesus is saying these guys will fold in an instant. The moment that they're called out by the world, these are people that aren't willing to stand for God's word. They will compromise their faith in a moment out of fear of being labeled as a religious nut or an intolerant bigot. For these people, their hearts will opt for the easy option of conforming to the world. Maybe not outright rejecting Christianity. Maybe they would say something. I've heard this term. I don't know what it means. I'm a non-practicing Christian. That doesn't make sense. That's like an illogical fallacy in itself. 
You can't be a non-practicing Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. Your faith is either in Christ or it's not. You're either living for Christ or you're not. You've either surrendered your life for Christ or you haven't. But this is the people that the rocky road represents. People that are willing to fold in an instant the moment any kind of opposition, trial, or tribulation appears because of their faith. Now, interestingly, these same trials, tribulations, and oppositions will have the opposite effect on a true born-again Christian. Because by the authority of God's word, and even the history of the church as evidence, we find that persecution for true born-again Christians results not in the destruction of their faith, but rather the increase of it, the strengthening of it. Because if you ever read through church history, we've made the biggest strides and the biggest advancements when the persecution was at its highest. Now, the third scenario that Jesus shares in verses 18 and 19, it says, And the others are sown, uh, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, uh, what I'm going to say now, it's not an indictment against anyone. Uh, I'm not trying to be judgmental. But if you're anything like me and you've grown up in the church, uh, you would have had countless friends that you grew up with at church that would fall into this third category. Uh, you would have had friends that went to church with you at some point. Maybe, you know, for those of you that grew up here, maybe you had friends that you grew up in HMX and Jeda with. Maybe even came to EM of FLM for a little bit with. Uh, guys that you, 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 you prayed together with, that you wept together with, that you, if you went to camp and retreats together with and you repented of your sins side by side, you knelt down before God, poured your hearts out on that final night of camp together with them. You did Bible study and discipleship with them. Maybe you even went on missions with them. But now, if you look at today's parable, maybe you think that these friends fall into this third category. Because maybe you look at these friends and you see that over the course of time, you've seen their hearts slowly harden and eventually succumb to the temptations that this world has to offer. Friends that were once what you thought was on fire for God, they're not even lukewarm now. They've totally fallen away from the faith and from the church. And you've watched them spiral down from being a visible, tangible lover of Christ into someone that looks, talks, and lives like the world. For this person, for this friend that you, you had, Jesus says that they did hear the word. They heard it. And you know they heard it because you saw their response to it. It looked sincere, didn't it? But for this person, they heard the word and the gospel must have taken some sort of a root and had some sort of growth in their life. However, they fell into the trap of what Jesus says about serving two masters. Jesus says no individual can serve two masters. Either he'll love one or hate the other. But you can't serve two masters. And for these people, they were living with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, thinking that they could have a balancing act that they could sustain until the day they die. But the reality is, as you look at these friends, and again, I'm not saying this to judge, I'm saying this 
out of love, because I'm sure you have love for these friends as well. I have love for my friends as well that fall into this category. I watch them slowly, trying to sustain this balancing act only to see the temptations of this world slowly choke out any growth that the word of God and the gospel had in their life. That's the people in the third category with the thorns. And then finally, there's the good soil, which Jesus describes in verse 20, as the ones who heard the gospel, hear the gospel rather, and they accept it. They embrace it, the gospel takes root, and they bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. These are individuals, this is the ideal situation, individuals where the gospel has taken genuine root in their life. They're not just wearing a Christian shirt and wearing a cross around their neck. Uh, They're not wearing just Christian merchandise, but their lives have genuinely been transformed. And the fruit that they bear in their life is the evidence of their transformation in Christ. These are guys that are just never the same again after they meet Jesus. This is the good soil. And then that's how today's passage ends. This analogy. Um, Jesus teaches an analogy to thousands of people. The apostles have no idea but pretend like they understand. Later come and ask Jesus for an explanation. And then Jesus gives an explanation. Uh, And like with every week, we have to ask that question. What does this mean for us today? And I want to share a few things that I'm hoping will further deepen our understanding of today's parable. And what it should mean for us today. And the first observation I want to point out is that the problem in today's passage is with the soil. The problem is with the soil. Now, I mentioned earlier that generally parables have a a central thrust or a focus to their message. And the central focus or thrust in today's passage is the problem that people have with the condition of their hearts. The problem is the soil of their hearts. The problem isn't with the sower. The problem isn't with the seed. The problem is with the condition of people's hearts. And so bearing this in mind, the reason I share this as the first point is because it's important to understand that when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to ministry and evangelism, if we understand that the problem is the soil, then we won't make the mistake of trying to change the seed or the sower. The problem isn't the seed. The problem is the soil. And one of the dangers of failing to realize this is that people so often will try to focus on trying to transform and change the seed rather than changing the condition of the soil. And the parable teaches that the problem isn't the seed. It's the soil. It's not the sower. It's not the seed. It's the soil. The seed of the gospel is the answer. To changing the condition of the soil. Romans 1.16 says that the power of God himself is what this seed is. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And this means that if the seed is the power of God for salvation, divine supernatural power, then we'd be fools to try and replace the seed with something artificial something that we think might work better. If you do that, if you replace the supernatural gospel with an artificial seed, you will end up with nothing more than artificial shallow converts whose confession of faith is shallow and superficial at best. 
We aren't called to create artificial converts, and we're not called to create artificial substitutes to the seed of the gospel. But we're called to take hold of this divine and supernatural seed that will create supernatural converts, whereby the Spirit of God transforms them so that they're never, ever the same again. And the reason this is important is because if you look at the parable, the reason we cannot look to artificial answers is because if you look at today's parable, all the odds are stacked against us. In the first scenario, you have Satan swooping in to steal the seeds spread on the hardened path. You have the trials and tribulations from the world collapsing the superficial faith from the seeds spread on the rocky path. You have the sin, temptations, and cares of the world choking out the seeds spread amongst the thorns. And so if you look at this parable, in a nutshell, you have the kingdom of darkness against you, you have external opposition against you in the world, and you have internal opposition against you, which is your flesh. Everything is stacked against us. And so the answer isn't to change the seed and leave people as they are. It's not to change the seed to make it more palatable for people, but to trust in the process that God has established the seed, which is the power of God for salvation. This is God's answer to true transformation. I preached at Costa back in February uh, in New Zealand. And the theme was Christians in the new normal era. And the, the, the focus, the theme that they were trying to you know, elevate and make the subject was that we're living in a culture that's very different to any other culture in the last hundred years. And so how are Christians meant to live today? And uh, one of the things I mentioned to the youth there is that the world changes. The world constantly changes. But the answer for us doesn't, rem you know, it doesn't change. You know, so often people cry, try to come up with new innovative ways to do church, and that, that's good, or innovative ways to meet Christians. But at the heart of it all, the answer for true supernatural transformation does not change. For 2,000 years, the gospel of Christ has been changing men and women. For 2,000 years, this is God's plan. At no point has God ordained us to come up with a new and a better way. It either works his way or we don't do it any other way at all. The seed is the gospel and the gospel is the power of God for salvation and for true transformation. Second point, the end goal is fruit, not foliage. Uh, I have an Armenian friend, not an Armenian friend, but Armenian as in the national nationality Armenian. Um, I have an Armenian friend. Uh, who, she was a former work colleague of mine at a previous company I worked for. And every once in a while, she'll invite me and a few of my old colleagues to her house. Uh, she lives like five minutes from me. And we'll all take our laptops to her, her home and we'll spend the day working together, like not like just doing our work. Um, at lunchtime, we'll eat together and we'll exercise together. And afterwards, after we finish for the day, we'll log off and we'll just sit, have a cup of tea and just talk and chill. Uh, one thing I love about her home, and I think maybe it's like a European thing because my Italian friends are the same as well, is when I go into her yard, 
Um, she's got this giant lemon tree and she's got like tomatoes growing and like, it's like, a, it's like a farm in their backyard. But she's got this giant lemon tree and everywhere you look on the grass, it's just lemons everywhere, littered everywhere. Um, you go into a dining room, it's just boxes of lemons. You sit at a dining table, it's just huge giant bowls of lemons. And every time we go to her house, before we leave, her mum will come out, take some lemons, take And she'll pull out a plastic bag. I'm like, I don't need, I, I don't need that many lemons. But she'll, no, take, 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 take. And then she'll give me, give like, we'll all leave with like two shopping bags full of lemons. Um, and this tree, it just, it's filled with lemons and it just litters her entire yard with lemons. But just like the lemon tree in my friend's backyard, this is the end goal for Christians that sit under the preaching and teaching of God's word. That in experiencing the saving power of the gospel, the end goal is to produce fruit, not foliage, which is what I've entitled today's sermon. And here's what I mean. In Galatians 5, you know, when we talk about fruits, we obviously think of fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul gives a list of what the fruits of the Spirit are. It says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I talk about fruit and not foliage, what I mean is this. We don't do the fruits of the Spirit so that we can look like a fruit-bearing tree. But because the seed of the gospel is planted in us, we bear the fruits of the Spirit because Christ has made us a fruit-bearing tree. We don't put the cart before the horse. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he doesn't tell people you need to become the salt of the earth. He doesn't tell them you need to become the light of the world. He says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are things you are, not, that, not things you need to become. You don't bear fruit so that you can look like a fruit-bearing tree. You bear fruit because you are a fruit-bearing tree. And that's why I entitled this sermon, Fruit Not Foliage, because what I'm trying to convey is that we need to strip this pursuit of trying to appear religious and rather embrace a life of transformation that naturally leads to a life that bears fruit. But that should lead to an obvious question. How do I get there? How do I get to this place of becoming um, a fruit-bearing tree? How do I get to this place where I get to that fourth scenario that Jesus talks about, a heart that has good soil? How can I experience this transformation? Uh, and the answer to that question in today's passage comes to us in two parts. The first is found in a verb, V-E-R-B, and it's in the verb to hear. Now, if you look at today's parable, we find that that verb to hear is used in all four scenarios. In verse 15, uh, the, the seeds along the path, it says, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word. Verse 16, uh, the seeds sowed on the rocky road. When they hear, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. Verse 17, when we talk... Uh, Sorry, rather, verse 18, when we talk about the words sown in the thorns, it says, when they hear, um, they hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness and the riches uh, come out and choke the word. 
And then finally, the ideal scenario, the good soil. These are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Um, now, we find this verb used in all four scenarios. And one of the sad things about the English translation um, is that they're not able to bring over from the original Greek uh, the nuance of what the word here has in the Greek. Um, because in the first three scenarios, the verb here in the Greek uses what's called an aorist tense. I don't know if anyone studies language or linguistics, but it has an aorist tense, which implies it's like a one-time thing. It happens at one point in time. Um, however, in verse 20, when it talks about the context of the good soil, when it refers to the, the verb to here, it uses what's called a durative present tense. And this means that this kind of hearing, the good soil kind of hearing, is an ongoing hearing. It's not a, it happened one point in time. It's not a past tense I heard once at the beginning of my conversion, but it's an ongoing tense. In other words, in order for the process of the gospel to happen, where the seed takes root, it means that it cannot be a one-time event in your life. But the gospel is an ongoing process. Because the hearing that Jesus is referring to, this process of the seed taking root, salvation in itself, it's all an ongoing process. And what this means is that the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. It's not the beginning of Christianity. It's not the step one. It's not the, I got converted and now I move on to more bigger and more complex things. But instead, ongoing hearing means that you never, ever outgrow your need of the gospel. You never outgrow your need for his word. And the reason this is so important is that it's in the word that we come to know and meet Christ. The Apostle John goes as far as to say in John chapter 1 that the word is Christ himself. So to compromise our dependence on God's word is in a sense to compromise your dependence upon Christ. And the moment that starts to happen is when the soil of your heart will start to transition from good soil into something that becomes more brittle and hardened. Now, depending on the word of God is one thing, uh, but understanding it is another this book is not an easy book to understand. Uh, if you look at the apostles, we find that they had sections where they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Um, it's not a flattering image that the scriptures present of the apostles. And at the risk of appearing foolish, we see that they came to Jesus saying, we have no idea what you're talking about. However, we would do well to emulate this kind of a response That when we don't understand, that we come to Christ in prayer and we lay it at his feet and tell him that we don't understand. Because what the scriptures promise is that our understanding of God's word comes from the illumination of the spirit. That God will illumine your mind and maybe over the course of time, maybe you won't get an instant answer like that, but over the course of time, if you don't understand the passage, you reflect upon it, you meditate upon it, and you pray upon it, God will actually point and direct you to eventually understand it. Maybe it's to a book 
that you'll read in the, in the future. Maybe it's a conversation that you have in your connect groups. But our God is not a master that hides away truth from us. But he's a God that reveals himself and reveals truth. So those are my two points. Uh, the first is that the problem isn't with the soil. So we need to stop trying to find the answers elsewhere. Stop trying to innovate the way we do church. The answer is in the gospel. The answer is in the word. And secondly, uh, the end goal is fruit, not foliage. Uh, we don't need to look religious. We just need to look like people that are captivated by Christ. And we do this by pursuing him through his word and through prayer. So I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer now. And I want us to pray for two things. Um, the first, first thing I'd like us to pray about um, is for friends that we might have grown up with, maybe at this church, maybe if you've come from another church, at other churches. But I've had a few conversations with people at this church because I used to go on mission trips, um, Aboriginal mission trips with people from this church. And I've asked a few people, oh, what happened to this person or what happened to that person? And I've heard them say, oh, I don't know, they don't go to church anymore. Or they're just either in between churches. And uh, for me, that's kind of tragic and heartbreaking. And even as I left my last church, uh, my parting message to my high school students was that I, five, ten years from now, I don't want to ever hear that you fell through the cracks and you don't go to church anymore. That would absolutely break my heart. And so I'm sure we've got friends like that that have fallen through the cracks at some point. Maybe the temptations of this world choked out any growth that they experienced through the word and through the gospel. And so those friends really need us because uh, God's design for building his kingdom has been to use human agents. And as human agents... Uh, we have a responsibility to pray for these friends. So in this moment, I'd like us to pray for those friends and also for ourselves as well. Uh, we saw that the answer to true transformation is continual hearing. Not a one-time repentance, not a one-time hearing of the gospel, but something that is ongoing because the evidence that we repented at one point repented and believed at one point in our life is that we continue to repent and to and believe today tomorrow until the day we die until the day we come face to face with the king so those two things i'd like us to lay down before the feet of the king to pray for our friends and for our, ourselves that we might continually be in the practice of hearing the voice of christ through the gospel let's pray
Father, we live in a world where the odds are stacked against us. We have spiritual op opposition as we have enemies, powerful enemies in the kingdom of darkness. We have external opposition as we live in a fallen world that hates and rejects Christ and the truth that he gives us in the scriptures. And we also have internal opposition because even after we are saved, we are still a people of the flesh that we're not immune to sin. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a supernatural seed, this gospel that not only saves, but transforms and sustains your people. Lord, we pray that we would never believe the lives of Satan, lies of Satan rather, that we wouldn't try to find artificial answers in other places or try and reinvent ways we can come to Christ, but to trust in the process that you have decreed, that only by repentance and faith in Christ, a trusting in Christ through the word that you have given us, that it's through this process that we experience the power of God in our life. Father, we pray to trust in this process. And we also pray for our friends, for anyone that's gone to church for any length of time. We would at least have that one friend that we might have grown up with, that at one point might have had a genuine zeal and a love for Christ a fire in their hearts that now seem to have had that flame extinguished. Lord, we want to lift this friend or these friends up to you, that you would perform a moving of the Holy Spirit in their heart, that you would reignite the flame that they once had, that they would experience a tangible encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ where they are never the same and that their hearts are changed to good soil. Let us never stop praying for these friends, Lord. And we lift them up to you and we lift ourselves up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.